What are we talking about? Right, right and wrong. Come on, man. What are we talking about? Right, right and wrong. Corn Pop was a bad dude. <laughs> Whoa. Corn Pop was a bad dude. <laughs> Whoa. Come on, man. What are we talking about? Right, right and wrong. Welcome to Right and Wrong. About? This is the show where we try to wake up the woke by talking common sense about the issues of the day. I'm your host, Brian Ruka, and with me as always over there is producer Juice, holding things down, telling the truth. Uh, what do you got out there, my friend, to tell the uh, people in the right and wrong audience this week's truth? History has been made. Life has triumphed in an extraordinary way. And the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ, the author of life, his light has burned so very brightly within each and every one of you, irrespective of your specific beliefs, compelling you forward for one reason or another to stand together today and fight the noblest and worthiest cause possible, which is to allow the unborn the right to enter into the world and defeat those earthly forces that wish to destroy the very evidence of them. Having lived under a grim cloud of darkness for the last 50 years, the world has once again been given a glimmer of hope. And I pray that with this recent step in protecting life, despite the grievous nature of what we've allowed, that God might still look upon us in his infinite mercy and see the hearts of those of us here in support of life today and say to us in this hour, it is good. And it is good. But it is far from finished. Absolutely. Can't argue with that. Always holding it down. Great job with that, uh, with those clips. Love it every week, my friend. Keep talking out there. Keep talking, please. Well, today we got a action packed show, as always, jam packed full of information for you guys, and uh, we'll react to it all. So we're going to visit the March for Life, which took place last week, and uh, give you a little bit of thoughts on that. We'll also go up to Massachusetts, where a son of a Democrat, a prominent Democrat up there, was arrested for protesting the police. And in the NFL, we have, surprise, surprise, a claim of racism by the lawyer of a uh, coach who recently was passed over for a gig as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. And in the come on, man, segment of the day, we will visit the author of a book called The Transgender Child. We'll hear what she had to say during a question and answer session that she recently did. Well, I guess that's all I got so far. So stick around. It's going to be a great show. And please don't forget to subscribe. Hit that like button and uh, tell a friend about us because we need the help out there. Spread the word. Other than that, I think I hear my boy in the background warming up his vocal cords. (laughs) Yep, that does sound like Mr. Ric Flair getting ready to come in because he knows just as well as I know that it is showtime, baby. Woo! Showtime! Woo! Woo! It's no secret that we live in the age of uh, surveillance. Think about it. We have cameras all over the place. There are cameras in public buildings, airports, subways, and office buildings. We have cameras on the street corners and around our homes everywhere. We even carry around cameras in our pockets. We're essentially living in a 24-7 surveillance state. Think about it. I realize that I'm telling you something that you're all well aware of already. 
But I bring it up because we're also being watched and studied in a more subtle way. I think it's easy to overlook these expert observers, but every once in a while they remind us that they're watching us. Who are these people? Antifa? The League of Shadows? MI6? Nope. I'm talking about our children. I'll be honest. As a parent, it's very easy to forget this. We're so consumed with trying to navigate life that we can overlook the fact that those little eyes are watching us and those little ears are hearing us even when we don't think they are. You see, when you're a kid, you look at your parents like they know everything. Then, when you become a parent, you realize parents don't know jack, and you quickly work on improving that poker face of yours. So, a couple of weeks ago when we were at church, I peeked over at my son and I noticed that he was copying me while we were praying. I fold my hands, he folds his hands. I bow, he bows. You get the idea. Just do what we are doing. Then, we made eye contact and we were both smiling about it. Since then, it's become a little running joke now. I think he finds it funny when I catch him copying me. Fast forward a couple of weeks, and it's like light dawns on Marblehead over here for me, but if he's studying me and copying how I behave at church, then he most definitely is studying and copying how I behave in all aspects of my life. I know it sounds pretty obvious when saying it out loud, but I know I'm not the only one out there that forgets to realize this from time to time. Now, this example that I'm using is an easy one to pick. It's a nice moment that I shared with my son while we were at church. It's the type of story to tell at a cookout that you'll most likely get an aww reaction from. The fact of the matter is, there's most likely a million examples of times when that young man has heard me say or watched me do plenty of things that I don't want him mimicking. I just naively assume he's not picking up on it. I'm not trying to say I'm this terrible scumbag father who's a monster behind closed doors. Just the opposite. I know I'm biased here, but I think overall I'm actually a pretty good dad. My kids are good kids, they have two loving parents, and we live in a happy home. But none of us are perfect. So those kids of ours are seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's on us to teach them how to emulate all of our best qualities and how to leave the worst ones behind them. Expand that thought out on a larger scale and it becomes crystal clear to me that we need to remind so many more adults that children are watching us. And the surveillance state that we live in allows us to trick them into believing that what we produce for them to see in the public is the same as seeing the real person when the cameras are off. I'm not just referring to celebrities and influencers when I talk about trying to craft an image of yourself for the outside world to see. Just think about how many BLM signs you drive by on lawns of people who live in a 99.9% white suburb. Think about the happy family photo you see posted on Facebook by the dad that's cheating on his wife. And think about how many people go to church every week and sit there and judge the rest of the congregation. Think about it. The people like that think they have the whole world fooled. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I can guarantee that their kids see the real them. And I know without a doubt in my heart that God sees the real them. It seems like we used to be a society that conducted ourselves with the understanding that God sees all. We used to strive to be good people at all times because God's always watching us. Now it feels like our society is only interested in being good when we know we'll get credit for being it. When we know the cameras are rolling. When we know we'll get that thumbs up or maybe even the ever sought after heart on a social media site. It's not easy to come to terms with the fact that God is always watching us. 
It can happen at all sorts of different times for each of us. I'm fortunate it's happened for me at what I consider to be a reasonably young age still. But once that clicks, once you realize that, once you see it, you can't unsee that. Then the next step is to pass that along and help others see the same light that you see. A few weeks ago, the priest said that Christianity is not a passive religion. He's absolutely right about that. And he said that as a way to encourage us to spread the word of God. And just living your life, knowing that God is always watching, is contagious to the ones that are around you. I have a group text with a special group of guys that helps remind me of that every day. Each person in that group lives their life in a way that kids can look up to and admire, and that God would approve of and would open the pearly gates for. We need to start holding the American people to this same standard. We need to encourage people to look themselves in the mirror and to be honest with themselves. Do you want to be the person that looks into your own daughter's eyes and encourages her to go kill the baby that's inside of her? Or do you want to be the person that helps your daughter to understand the value of human life and what an honor it is for her to have the superpower of being a mom? Do you really want to be the kind of person that helps his son stop puberty from happening because the kid feels weird in his own body? Or would you rather be the person that helps your son accept himself for who he is? And do you want to be the one to lead your child into a life of secularism where their moral view and value system is shaped by the world around them? A broken world around them? Or would you rather be the person that introduces that son, that child, that daughter to God and helps them accept God for who he really is? Or better yet, in the simplest possible way, would you rather be right or would you rather be wrong? All right, all right, all right. It's time to hit those rights and wrongs of the week. So without further ado, let's jump right into things. Right off the bat here, I'd love to talk about the uh, March for Life. So as you all know, I'm sure you're aware of, um, the March for Life took place last week in Washington, D.C., and this this was the first one held since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, since that awesome Dobbs decision came down back uh, at the end of June last year. So this was definitely an upbeat moment for those people that have been focused on that in uh, big members of the pro-life movement for years and years now, uh, and it's people that, that have attended this walk who have been you know, a part of organizing it and a part of, you know, just running it, participating in it, generating buzz for it and helping spread that throughout all the other states in the uh, in the country. So it's people like that who have worked hard and, and have kept that alive that that enabled a decision like the Dobbs decision to, to come out and to be overturned. So those people should be very proud of the hard work they've done and, and put in for that. I'm sure it never was easy, um, but I'm sure it, it seemed pretty bleak at times too like it would they'd never see this day that that Roe versus Wade would get overturned. So that's definitely an encouraging first step, but from some of the clips that I've heard and and you know the things that I read and pay attention to, I'm so happy to see that the pro-life movement realizes that that's just the first step. It it doesn't end there because at the end of the day, abortions still are going on in this country and babies are still being killed at an alarming rate. And nobody that's believes in pro-life once you 
again, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee this type of stuff. But once you come to terms with what an abortion is, what's going on there, what decisions actually being made, it's kind of hard to to still want to allow that to happen in the greatest country in the world. So the fight is is definitely still going, and there's more uh, battles that can be won along the way. So I'm glad to see that they got a great turnout this year. There are many good speakers. You know, my man that I that I mentioned last week from The Chosen that plays Jesus. I know he was one of the speakers this year. He did a great job. But yeah, they, they got to keep up the good work and keep keep fighting. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to talk about a post that I saw on LinkedIn that kind of caught my attention. And I think it kind of fits a little bit in this um, in this framework of, of, you know, abortion, you know, the right to choose, like all, all the all the stuff that the left likes to try and talk about. So this post that I saw, it was from someone I have no clue who this person is. It was just somebody that I'm connected with on LinkedIn, liked this person's post, and that's how it came across my news feed. But I'd love to read it for you for a second. So this person is um, the director of sales for um, a company somewhere, uh, female, and she was reacting to you know, her company allowing like a bereavement policy, I believe, for loss of a pregnancy. So here's what she wrote in her post. Until having a miscarriage of my own, I didn't fully understand the physical toll of miscarrying on a woman's body. The internet basically tells you it's a heavy period. For myself and most women, I know that was not the case. And that is just the physical portion of the loss. The emotional and psychological toll are often worse than the physical pain. Our bodies and minds grieve the loss. Adding loss of pregnancy to a bereavement policy is not only accurate, but overdue. Happy to see this company stepping up. And that's the end of our post. So call me cynical, I guess. But the first thing I thought of when I when I read that was like, hey, cool. That's, a, that's awesome that they're treating a miscarriage as a loss of a life and treating a miscarriage as a bereavement because you lost a life, right? But I couldn't help but think, what does this person posting this feel about the, quote, woman's right to choose to have an abortion or not? Would this woman be in favor of of allowing somebody to do that? Again, I don't know her, so I'm not sure, but the statistics tell me, logic and numbers would say, She's probably in favor of that woman's right to choose and make her own decisions for her own body nonsense. I can tell you that uh, I know a good amount of people that are liking that post certainly believe in pro-abortion standards and policies. I can absolutely tell you that there's many people that don't even see the irony in these two things. They don't even make that connection. They can't make that connection. That when a woman loses a baby without that being, again, quote, her choice, because it's never her choice, it's a terrible tragedy and it's something that that she feels bad for psychologically, physically harmful, this, that, and the other thing. But when somebody doesn't want that baby and they go and make that, again, quote, choice to go murder that baby and have that baby removed from their body, then she's courageous, heroic, She's not going to suffer any physical pain. There's going to be no postpartum depression problems or psychological issues that she's going to have to deal with. Everything's just fine. It's cool. No worries. She just wants to plan her life. You do you. Who am I to tell you what you can and cannot do? 
that's the thing that that troubles me the most at times and, and the fact that people either a don't see it or b see it and pretend they don't that's the frustrating part about this issue and you can't have it both ways all the people that want to look at their friends ultrasound and see how realistic that is that the you can see the baby you can literally see the baby in the ultrasound and be all oh that's so cute oh i'm so happy for you and and then on the in the next breath tell you that who are they to tell someone that they can't just terminate that baby if they don't want it i i don't have any respect for that it's hard to respect somebody who can say that with a straight face because it's so cute and it's a baby and it's awesome when it's wanted and it's just a clump of cells and and it's the unborn fetus when it's not wanted that post by the woman there that really brought that out for me and i can't help but think of it that way again i think it it goes back to the theme already in this show it's once you see some of this stuff you can't unsee it anymore so i'm sorry but i see a post like that and i immediately think what's this person's stance on abortion next All right, so this is the story back in my home turf up there in Massachusetts of a Melrose Democrat, pretty prominent member there. Um, what's her name? Catherine Clark. And she uh, she recently had her son got, got arrested for protesting the police in the middle of Boston and uh, working with what some are saying uh, Antifa rioters. And this is a prominent Democrat politician from Massachusetts's own kid involved in this the story i have here is a uh, story from the daily wire and i just want to hit a couple of the points that got made in this story and once again it's uh representative Catherine clark who her son jared was arrested jared dowell was arrested for rioting and defacing property and you know basically just being a punk and protesting against the police now when Jared's mother, Catherine Clark, comments on it. Clark says, last night, my daughter was arrested in Boston, Massachusetts. Clark, who is the Democratic whip of the U.S. House of Representatives, tweeted, I love Riley, and this is a very difficult time in the cycle of joy and pain in parenting. This will be evaluated by the legal system, and I am confident in that process. Wait, 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 what? Huh? My daughter? Didn't you guys just say his name was Jared? Her son? Oh, yep. Nope. Forgot to tell you. Um, Jared is now non-binary and identifying as a she-her. And his Democrat whip mother, of course, is going along for this. She's probably most proud she's ever been of, of little Jared. Did you guys hear? Did you guys, did you guys see? I have one of my own now. I have a trans non-binary child. Oh, man, say goodbye to that white male Jared over there. I now have Riley, the police-hating, green-initiative-loving, transgender female who's always been female and now is being comfortable in her own body. I bet you this mother is more proud now than she's ever been in little Jared's life. And that's the point. There's no no surprise here. Uh, again, what what did we talk about at the beginning of the show? Our kids are watching us. Little Jared has been watching his mom his whole life. 
That's why, a few years back, his mom was on the news talking about how Jared here wakes up in the middle of the night with nightmares because he thinks the world is going to end over climate change. You got that one, Juice? Let me tell you what it means to to me coming in as a different generation. I remember my middle child waking up with nightmares over concern around climate change. I mean, wh- what are we doing here? Are there any adults in the room? Are there anybody willing to parent their children correctly? Or are we just going to pass on our own nonsense onto them? Why would a little kid be so afraid that they're waking up with nightmares in the middle of the night over climate change if it wasn't for his crazy, lunatic, far-left mother putting that thought into his head? Now, why would this 23-year-old male be there defacing property, spray-painting no-cop city on a monument and calling himself a girl now? If he didn't have a mother like that. I I mentioned it already, but do you think little Jared has been trying to get his mother's attention for a long time now? I think he finally hit the nail on the head. Hate the police. Work with Antifa and call yourself a girl. And now mom's super proud of you telling all of her little friends in Washington, D.C. that she's part of the trans club now. Next. Dragging our kids down into the pit of hell. All right, this story here is uh, an NFL story. So as you guys may or may not know, during the playoff season here, which is going on now, all the teams that are eliminated already, they've been firing coaches left and right, conducting interviews for new coaches, and trying to prepare already for next season. One of those teams, the Carolina Panthers, um, fired their coach, I think it was four five games into the season and they promoted his assistant Steve Wilkes to the interim head coach. This happens, you know, quite a bit. Guys get fired during the season and somebody has to take over and and lead the team the rest of the way. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody who's ever been in that position, all these fans who watch the interim head coach have that understanding in their head that this guy's just holding the job till the end of the season. And that's it. They're moving in a whole different direction. Because if you know anything about, you know, the NFL specifically, these are large coaching staffs. And if you're promoting somebody who's already on the staff to to just run the ship after you, you know, fired the captain, that person was hired by the person you fired to work on the staff and work on the team. So you're not gonna fire the 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 chief and, and just promote one of his Indians. Sorry, left. I know you're going to try and cancel me over that one. But that, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense, right? So Wilkes took over. He coached Arizona as a head coach for one season and was canned after going, I think he went like one in 15 in his, his one season as a head coach. Um, you know, decent coach, though, as a defensive assistant, been in the league for a while, respected. You know, the players played okay for him when he took over for the fired Matt Rule, but I, I never gave it any serious thought that that guy was going to get the job and be hired as the coach there afterwards. Hey, maybe he'll get an opportunity with another team. He definitely will as a defensive coordinator, but he wasn't going to get this job as a head coach there in Carolina where you were the interim. But Carolina just hired their new coach, and lo and behold, Wilkes' attorney, who also represents 
Brian Flores, who was fired by Miami Dolphins a year ago, um, this lawyer claims that it's racism in the NFL. That's why his client wasn't hired there. We all should have saw this coming, but let me pull up the uh, the quote that this this lawyer had to say. So he said, we are shocked and disturbed that after the incredible job Coach Wilkes did as the interim coach, including bringing the team back into playoff contention and garnering the support of the players and fans that he was passed over for the head coach position by Dave Temper. There is a legitimate race problem in the NFL, and we can assure you that we will have more to say in the coming days. End quote. I mean, again, to the naked eye and the people that are going to comment the most about this stuff and have a problem with it, you need to realize something. One, you should not be shocked and disturbed that he wasn't hired. There's been, I think I have it here, the past 10 years, there's been 17 interim head coaches. Only two of them have ever been hired as the head coach to, to continue coaching. That's not a big number. It it's basically never happens. He also says after after Coach Wilkes did an incredible job. Mm, was it really incredible? Including bringing the team back into playoff contention. Yeah. I guess we're splitting hairs here. They were in the worst division in the entire league. The division was won by Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with an 8-9 losing record. So, yeah, I mean, Carolina had a chance at making the playoffs, but it's because their division was horrible, and one team had to make it from that division. So they had a chance to maybe contend, but it's not like they were this great team and they did an incredible job. They've been a bad team for five years now, six years, maybe longer. And to give you a little history lesson on the coaching gig there, they have an owner who bought the team, I think it was five years ago now, maybe six. And he bought the team, coming in all excited, right? Woohoo, I'm an NFL owner. And he inherited Riverboat Ron Rivera, who's a minority coach. And Riverboat should have probably been fired a few years before this guy even came in as the owner, but he continued to hang on to his job. So the owner doesn't want to come in and just fire the guy right off the bat. Now, I'm adding this part myself, but may or may not have had to do with the fact that Ron Rivera was a minority head coach. If this straight white male comes in after buying the team and immediately fires the minority coach... What type of message is that sending? Or who's going to talk about that? What type of PR is going to be surrounded by this? So the guy lets Rivera keep his gig, works with him. And eventually, after during year number two, when it's clear that Rivera's not a very great head coach, he cans him. So now it's like, okay, new owner. Typically, most of these teams, the way the NFL runs, you have a new general manager. They want to bring in their own head coach. That own head coach wants to bring in his own quarterback he can work with, right? So same idea for an owner. When an owner takes over a team, I'm sure he wants to bring in his own head coach that he can work with, not inherit the guy who's been there middling for the past few years before you bought the team. So anyways, Tepper comes in, stuck with Rivera, eventually fires Rivera. Then he hires his own coach, a guy, hut named coach coming from the college ranks. Keeps him for three years. 
didn't quite work the way he thought it was going to work. He thought this guy was going to be the answer, and he wasn't. So he does the hard thing, admit his failure, cuts him loose, and fires him during season number four. Promotes Wilkes to just run the team for the rest of the season, play out the stretch for him. Now, if you're that owner, do you want to just take the guy that that just inherited the spot because you fired his boss? Or do you realize now you're on, this is going to be coach number three? I mean, technically four, if you consider the interim coach, you know, a legitimate coaching candidate. This guy better get it right this time, right? So he's going to get somebody he wants. It's got to be his guy. He doesn't want to just inherit the guy that was left behind from the coach he just fired. He already inherited a guy when he bought the team. Does that have to do with the guy's skin color? Or does it have to do with the situation that's unfolded there? Like, give me a break here. And think about the harm you're doing to these candidates. The psychological harm. Now that's all this guy can think about. If he's got people in his ear left and right, oh, you're not getting that gig just because you're a black man. Oh, you got fired because you're black. That stuff weighs on a person. And think about how that's going to help him grow as a coach. Is he going to is he gonna improve as a coach or is he going to have a chip on his shoulder and just think that he's not getting a chance because he's black? There are many more black players in the league than white players. There's a ton of them. And everybody makes the, makes the point that there's not enough black coaches. There's not enough representation. The NFL specifically has a rule that you have to, have to, interview at least one minority coach for any vacancy you have on your coaching staffs. How many guys have gone to interviews just because they're black and the team had to, had to do that when they had no intention of giving them that job? That's degrading and insulting. Take the skin color out of it. What does the guy's mind tell you? What's his leadership ability? To think in 2023, do you really think people are getting looked over for their color of their skin? No. You could make the argument that maybe in the past stuff like that happened. I'm sure it did. Not today. Not in this day and age. The backlash is too severe. The PR hit is too severe. If anything, people have gotten chances they don't deserve because of the color of their skin. So pump the brakes a little bit before we just start throwing around claims of racism and lawsuits and nonsense when there's legitimate reason for the thought process behind who you're going to hire as a coach. And furthermore, it's his team. He can hire whoever the hell he wants. Next. And that's going to do it for the rights and wrongs of the week. Thank you guys so much again for your loyal listening ears out there. Please give us a uh, like, a subscribe, and uh, share the show with some of your friends. Don't be afraid to throw a comment in there for me, too. Give me a nice uh, pep talk or uh, even tell me, you stink, if that's how you feel in the comments there on uh, Apple. All right. I guess it's time for our come on, man, segment of the day. So let's go ahead and move over to that. Come on, man. What are you talking about? In the come on, man, segment of the day, we're going to go visit um, this woman by the name of Rachel Pepper. She's a co-author of a book called The Transgender Child. Now, Miss Pepper was on stage doing a question and answer segment. And this clip that we're going to play for you happened to be circulating over there on the World Wide Web on the uh, old Elon Musk Twitter machine, I guess. So uh, just to give you a little bit of background, I guess, about this book and, and what it's all about. 
Here's what the description of the of the book says on uh, on Amazon if you look it up. Again, it's called The Transgender Child. This is what the review says, right? The description. Libraries may own books dealing with transgender adults, but this is the only guide about raising transgender children. While the general message to parents is that you have nothing to apologize for and nothing to be embarrassed about, the authors make it clear that parents and families will not have it easy. It goes on to say, What do you do when it's grandma's birthday dinner and your eight-year-old son insists on wearing his dress in Mary Jane's? And how do you handle dating when your trans girl daughter still has male sex organs? Braille and Pepper, those are the authors, bring solid credentials and years of research to help parents and others deal with issues specific to transgender children. Answers may not be easy, but blaming the child, denying access to transgender friends, and verbal threats are not helpful. When parents recognize their child's gender identity, there can be feelings of confusion anger, shock, fear, shame, and grief. Most children have gender identities by age two or three. Like homosexuality, being transgender is not a choice, nor is it, as it has often been labeled, acting out in anger against parents. There is much detail about medical practices and legal matters, most of which become issues as transgender children become adults. Wow, what a description of this book, huh? Um, I mean, I definitely like to push back on some of those points at the end of it there. Being transgender, much like homosexuality, is not a choice. Um, Yes, it is. And once again, we see the transgender activist community there trying to lump themselves in with the uh, homosexuality community. And that's one of the things they've, they've latched on to that group because they want that narrative that, you know, being transgender is not my choice. It's just who I am. Born this way, right? As Lady Gaga once said, um, it's not the same. I'm sorry. And even the homosexuality, that's a conversation for another day. But that is just an accepted philosophy that needs to be fleshed out a little bit more as well. But you certainly have control over if you want to act like the opposite sex or not. That is your control. That is your choice. And as a child, most of our arguments here, as the adults looking at transgender through the lens of a child, that child does not have that choice to make that for themselves. It's usually these kooky parents, like that Catherine Clark there in Massachusetts, forcing that stuff on their children. Now, I understand Clark's child is a 23-year-old male, so he is an adult and he can make his own decisions, but the seeds were planted in that young man at a much younger age than 23 years old. And people like this Dr. Pepper. Wait, is she even a doctor? I don't know. I guess I just added that part. Thank you, uh, Dr. Pepper. And thank you, Chancellor. <laughs> um, Rachel Pepper here. She's enabling parents and encouraging parents to plant these seeds at a younger, 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 younger age each and every day. And that's the problem that's going on here. So why don't we just... uh play you the clip and uh, see what she had to say to the question that was asked of her. Juice? This next question comes from clearly a parent. It asks, how do we help skeptical teachers and extended family members support a very young trans kiddo, age four? You know, at that age, parents have a lot of choice generally, depends on their community and their resources, have some choice about where the child goes to school. Right? Are they in preschool? Are they in daycare? 
maybe if they have the ability, and of course there's privilege built into this answer, but if they have the ability to find uh, a daycare or preschool or pre-K that is supportive of all children, so does not limit a child's ability to play with a certain kind of toy or shame them for putting on sparkly clothes if they're perceived to be a young boy, that just accepts them, clothes are clothes, toys are toys, and kind of just, you know, a matter-of-fact, loving environment. Whoa, 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 whoa. You see the, the, the sleight of hand there? In the one breath, she'll say, clothes are clothes, toys are toys. Simple, right? Yet, she'll tell you, a boy's not a boy, a girl's not a girl. That's much more difficult. Now, I'm having trouble trying to understand how you can how you can balance those two. Now, I'm sure she would push back and be like, well, one's an adult, one's just simply fabric or a toy. But she has the right mindset when thinking about the clothes or the toys they they just they are what they are but when the child is involved when she thinks of the child she wants to overcomplicate it and make it this much deeper philosophical discussion or or theory that she has on a four-year-old child nope the four-year-old's just either a boy or a girl and we know this by what the kid in kindergarten cop says Boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. That's how you know, lady. Don't overcomplicate it with this nonsense philosophy that you have, with this nonsense gender theory that you want so badly to force on the rest of us here in in today's society. Let's continue. Now with family, sometimes families, no, no matter what the age of the child, sometimes families have to make hard decisions. Because there may be people in extended families who are toxic and who are not safe people for those children to be around. So sometimes families have to write a letter sort of explaining uh, if you're not on board and you don't have to approve, but if you're not on board with being polite or being caring when we see you, we will not be able to have you in our life. And those are hard decisions for, for people to make, but it is about the safety of their child. Crazy. This is crazy talk, right, people? Does, does she not realize that the harmful one, that the toxic one, that the, that the one that's harming that child is the one that she looks in the mirror and sees every day when she wakes up? It's people like her. It's people that are encouraging their child to change their sex and to be called by a different pronoun. Those are the toxic family members. And you're going to tell them that they need to cut out the grandparent who wants to tell you that, no, your your boy's a boy and your girl's a girl? That's not going to go along with your nonsense? That's the dangerous person? That's the toxic family member in this person's life? I think just the opposite. That family member is the only one standing up for, for what's right, for the truth. That's the only one who's looking out for this child's well-being. The nut job who's convincing their four-year-old that they're a different sex is the danger. And that person is the one who needs to be removed from that child's life. If you don't hear the right answer, if you don't get what you want, if you don't get, you know, patted on the back, you just remove these people from your life and move on. That's what we teach our kids. This is the everybody gets a trophy mindset on steroids, people. Instead of telling, you know, the truth, hey, you lost the game, you don't get a trophy. You you think you're going to save their feelings by giving them the trophy and telling them everything's great and you're an all-star anyways. That's the same thing here. 
Oh, you feel like you're a girl? Great, you are a girl then. Don't care what anybody else has to say. Don't listen to them. Remove them from your life then. Go hang out with people that are going to affirm you. Go find a, a group of people on online that's going to be a forum for and an outlet for you to express who you really are. It goes back to the whole that 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 whole uh, the phrase "living your truth," right? That I hate that phrase. It's so ridiculous. There's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's only the truth, and that's what we need to get back to. And we need to keep playing clips like this and showing the ridiculousness of people like this. Rachel Pepper. That's someone who's respected in the you know clinical community, in the uh, academic community. That's someone who has access to to mold people's minds and shape opinions. That is dangerous, dangerous stuff, people. And that, along with many other things, are the reasons why you, Miss Rachel Pepper, have earned yourself one big, fat, classic. Come on, man. And that's our show for today. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Once again, please remember to subscribe to the show. Give us a like, give us a five-star review, and drop us a comment in the uh, comment section. Maybe I'll even read it on the air if it's a good one. So until next week, I have nothing else to say to you guys except thanks for having me. The Right and Wrong Show is produced by Juice, executive producer Juice. Audio mixer is Juice. Hair by Skull Shavers. Wardrobe and makeup by Ashley Ruka. Right and Wrong Song created by Juice. The Right and Wrong Show is copyright 2022 from Brian Ruka.